Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the August 2021 edition of Outbeat News in Depth. I'm Greg Moralia. Well, as communities struggle to mend the relationship between the criminal justice system and the people it serves, the district attorney's office in Napa County has created a fantastic model for how to make connections with the LGBT community. Instead of inviting community members in need of service to come to the district attorney's office, the DA's staff is going to the community. And in Napa, they've set up shop in the local LGBT center. District Attorney Allison Haley and Napa LGBT Connection Director Ian Stanley are both with us tonight to talk about how this partnership came to be. It's a model that could work in every community, including here in Sonoma County. So stay with us. It's all coming up next, right after your Outbeat Radio News for this Sunday, August 22nd, 2021. This is Greg Moralia with your Outbeat Radio News for the week of August 22nd, 2021. According to the Bay Area reporter James Catherwood Hormel, a philanthropist and the first openly gay person to represent the United States as an ambassador, died in a San Francisco hospital on Friday, August 13th. His husband was at his side, and his favorite Beethoven concerto was playing. He was 88 years old. Mr. Hormel's family said he died of natural causes. He served as an ambassador to Luxembourg from 1999 to 2001. In 2016, he told the Bay Area Reporter he recalled the long and torturous route to the diplomatic posting. It all began in 1992 at a dinner with then Bill Clinton's campaign treasurer, Bob Farmer. Over dinner, Farmer suggested to Mr. Hormel that he seek a presidential appointment as an ambassador. Now, the appointment didn't happen easily. In fact, it wasn't until five years after that dinner that President Clinton nominated Mr. Hormel for the job. During that period, Mr. Hormel recalled he made dozens of visits and hundreds of phone calls to keep his name in consideration. Mr. Hormel said that he was persistent because if appointed, quote, I would break a ceiling and make it easier for gay people to serve at the highest levels of government, end quote. Senate Republicans and conservative Christians opposed his nomination, and President Clinton ultimately employed a recess appointment in May of 1999. Senator Dianne Feinstein said Mr. Hormel was a, quote, civil rights pioneer, end quote. And for many years, Mr. Hormel has been a philanthropist and generously supported LGBTQ and social organizations. He recently contributed $500,000 to the San Francisco Public Library to fund the James Hormel Gay and Lesbian Center in the main library. And in Maryland, attorneys for a high school argued in court earlier this month that the school couldn't be liable for any alleged sexual harassment or rapes that took place in their school because there couldn't have been any sexual gratification involved in the male-on-male incidents. Defending the school against allegations that it knowingly left students unsupervised in the school's locker room, leading to several alleged sexual assaults with broomsticks. An attorney argued before a federal court. He said, quote, there is no indication that this was motivated by a sexual desire because there wasn't any yelling of sexual slurs about maybe homosexuality or things like that, end quote. The civil litigation stems from an ongoing civil charge against several students for participating in a hazing event that allegedly ended with students being anally penetrated with a broomstick at Damascus High School. Damascus High School is part of the Montgomery County School District in Damascus, Maryland, and currently serves about 1,200 students. And last week, we reported on calls by the Human Rights Campaign staff for their executive director, Alfonso David, to resign over his involvement in the sexual harassment scandal involving New York Governor Cuomo. 
The Human Rights Campaign has now announced to staff that an independent review of Alfonso David will be completed. A pair of emails, one from the HRC board and the other from David himself, announcing that the independent review will be conducted by Chicago-based law firm Sidley Austin LLP and will be completed within 30 days. The emails were shared with the Washington Blade and a representative for the HRC confirmed that the emails were accurate. In his email, David said that, quote, he fully endorses the review, reiterating his joined calls for Cuomo to resign and denying that he's done anything wrong. And here in California, gubernatorial candidate Caitlyn Jenner has returned to the campaign trail after taking time away to participate in Australia's Celebrity Big Brother series. She marked her return by visiting Venice Beach in Los Angeles and touring an encampment of homeless people living in a public park. Jenner didn't help or meet with any of the transient people in need. However, she complained with others that such people exist. She said, quote, where do they get these dilapidated campers, end quote. Jenner has made condemning the amount of homeless people in California a key component of her attempt to recall the current governor, Gavin Newsom, and become governor herself. In May, shortly after launching her campaign, Jenner sat down with Fox News' Sean Hannity to explain that she decided to run because her wealthy friends didn't like seeing homeless people in California. Jenner said, quote, we have to reclaim our public space. We have to regulate our public space, end quote. For a calendar of LGBT events happening here in the North Bay, go to GaySonoma.com. For Outbeat Radio News, I'm Greg Moralia. The average citizen will likely never have a need to visit the district attorney's office. They might never even have a need to call the police for anything. But when that need does arise, the criminal justice system can seem really scary, very overwhelming, and complicated at best to navigate. In Napa County, District Attorney Allison Haley has found a way to bring service to the community rather than sitting back and waiting for the community to come to her office. DA Haley's office has partnered with the Napa LGBTQ Connection and now has staff at the LGBT Center regularly so that those members of the community with questions or in need of some service can access those services in a comfortable and less intimidating environment. I had a chance to sit down with the LGBTQ Connections Center Director Ian Stanley and DA Haley to talk about this idea and where it came from. Welcome to you both. Good morning. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. It's great to have you both here and to talk about this fantastic partnership that I have found truly unique. Uh, it's actually the first time that I've heard of a local district attorney's office actually engaged, physically present in an LGBT center. So tell me about where this idea came from. Ian? Um, yeah, you know, uh, over the years, so LGBTQ Connection is 10 years old this year. And, Holy cow, uh, really? 10 years? <laughs> That's great. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. Um, and, you know, we started as a youth program and soon after began working with older adults and folks in between all the ages and families. Um, and... Uh, as we began to get to know people's different circumstances, it just really became clear that that having a better relationship with all of the programs that support LGBTQ people is very important because 
many of our community members felt disconnected. Mm. And I think one of those, those really important ones are the systems that serve us when, when something bad has happened in our lives uh, or unfortunate mm -hmm. and, and we need support. Um, in the district attorney's office and the, the systems of, you know, that help us be, feel more protected legally are, are one of those. Um, safety, I think, comes up frequently in conversations with LGBTQ people um, and wanting to know who they can count on and who, who they can turn to. Right. Was there a particular event that brought this forward? I know you did a survey some years back and, and you mentioned the connection with the criminal justice system was one of the needs. But did something happen that prompted this partnership? Yeah, I, I think, you know, the very clear uh, moments that led to this are in the very first year in 2011, um, when we had our community forum in October, one of the main categories of uh, support that the community was looking for, you know, we started dreaming what would make Napa County, uh, not just safe, but like vibrant and feel like a community. And all of these categories emerged from the ideas that were presented from the 200 something community members. One big category was safety, safety mm -hmm. and law enforcement. Mm -hmm. um, so then in 2012 and 13, when we did our needs assessment survey and had about 500 folks respond to that and participate in focus groups, we made sure that that category had a number of questions. And so we asked things like, um, how safe do you feel with law enforcement? How well do you think that they're thinking about um, your needs? What are the main things that they can do? Um, and it came up that, that, well, that a lot of people didn't have any experience with them and so felt disconnected. And the ones that did, didn't feel necessarily favorably or they weren't sure if they could count on mm -hmm. law enforcement. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so um, we began some conversations then. Uh, and then again, I think it must have been two or three years ago, Napa County Board of Supervisors um, uh, had staff engage the community, like the wide community, in a number of meetings to get their input on the strategic plan for the next three years. Uh, and we... Uh, we suggested the idea of having an LGBTQ specific meeting. It was very well attended. Uh, our district attorney, Allison, <laughs> uh, was there. Uh, and, and I think, you know, Allison, you like to be involved in the community in a number of ways. And so that was excellent to have you facilitate the conversation and the group that emerged about what are the safety needs um, and conversations that matter to the folks who are present. And so that, that connecting the dots of all of those lines of there isn't much of a relationship. Those who are connected to law enforcement didn't know if they could trust them all the time, um, wanted to have a better um, connection of support. And then Allison, you facilitating that conversation and hearing, I think many of the stories that are behind that uh, then led to us talking about, well, what, what can we do um, to enhance that? What can we do to improve upon what's going on? Yeah, I think it was historically district attorney's offices have, um, have victim witness departments mm -hmm. and we wait for cases to come in and we wait for victims to walk through our door and ask for help. And um, that system, while it might seem intentionally welcoming and so forth, it isn't. <laughs> it, is, it is a government law enforcement agency, and there are wide groups of people who do not feel safe in those spaces. Mm -hmm. And if we are ever going to treat people with the dignity and the compassion and the respect that they deserve, we need to recognize that not all of those spaces are safe. And rather than wait for them to come to us, to go to where they feel comfortable 
and be present in the spaces that are comfortable for them. Um, one thing I should point out that the presence of the district attorney's office at any of these locations, whether it be um, with Ian at LGBTQ or these other locations that we've, um, we've been creating partnerships with, mm -hmm. there is no requirement that anyone prosecute a case. There's no requirement that you have to take it beyond or going to the cops or doing anything, that you are still eligible for services and you are still eligible for the conversation, even if that's not the route you wanna go down. I don't want people to mistake this as us infiltrating so that we can raise our conviction rate. <laughs> like huh. that is not the purpose of it. The purpose of it is to show compassion in a way that's meaningful and um, and be very intentional about where we're showing up. And so talk a little bit more about the victim witness section of your office. I mean, you've always provided very robust services in that area, but maybe people don't really know what those individuals yeah. do and the kinds of services beyond helping with a prosecution. Uh, Absolutely. So the victim witness department is one of, I have five divisions here at the district attorney's office. The victim witness department is staffed by four full-time advocates. Each advocate specializes in working with a particular type of crime survivor. We have um, one overarching manager and we really focus um, on elder abuse, human trafficking, um, underserved populations, domestic, uh, domestic violence situations. And um, we provide services no matter whether a case is charged or not. And if a case is charged, we help that survivor walk through the system. We make sure they know what courtroom to go to. We tell them what's gonna, what we anticipate is gonna happen at that court hearing date. And um, let's say a case isn't charged, they still, those crime survivors may still be eligible for services, counseling, different kinds of resources. Maybe they need to know, maybe they have questions about who they should go to about food mm -hmm. or about immigration services or about even, you know, needing a restraining order. We provide all of those services and there is, there is no, um, there's no immigration requirement. I know that's sometimes a commonly held Big belief. Time. There yeah. is no requirement that they cooperate with the prosecution. Um, there is no requirement for any of those things. It is really a place for crime survivors to get their needs taken care of. And being intentionally out in the community, I'm hoping that we can spread some of that compassion to more people. Because there are a lot of services that are available that I don't think a whole lot of crime victims even realize that they're entitled and, to or that they can access. And that's been, I think, failure from the district attorney's office hmm. to not be more forthcoming. And I need to rectify that. That's it's great. As simple as that. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I know we, tr we train in the police academy. We train officers to be able to be informers of those services as well. And things like sexual assault and domestic violence and hate crimes, there's you know, requirements that officers have to, to um, you know, to meet, but that requires the victim to come forward and call the police. And, sure. and as you mentioned, people are afraid of that. And so having an outlet to go and get access to those services without having to pursue a report if they don't want to is really fantastic. So Ian, uh, talk about how this works. You created a space in the LGBTQ Connection Center, which is Napa's 
LGBT center, really. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us about the space and what does it look like? What would people see when they come in? Well, yeah, I think when folks come to our building first, and it's a shared building, so we actually have a number of community programs in there, including LGBTQ Connection. Uh, We also have Voices, and then soon our our Neighborhood Initiative program will also be in there. Those are sibling programs of LGBTQ Connection. But it is also our LGBT center. So when folks come up to the building, it looks like a little greenhouse, uh, and we want it to feel very welcoming and friendly and not like necessarily a sterile office. Um, So there are... Uh, the youth program runs the front of the house, and so they have uh, you know, staff and volunteers who welcome everyone in um, at the front door or who help answer the phones. They'll get you connected to our LGBTQ staff right away um, or anyone who has questions about appointments. Um, the time with uh, the district attorney's office, and it's staffed by Belinda Ruiz, uh, who is wonderful and also speaks more than just English. Uh, she speaks English and Spanish. Those are the mainly requested languages we get, but also I hear speaks French and Arabic a little wow. bit, um, or maybe more than a little bit. I, I, I haven't spoken to her uh, in those languages. Uh, you could be faking it and I wouldn't know. So yeah. <laughs> I believe her. She's very, she's very straightforward. <laughs> so um, she, Belinda is there every fourth Monday of the month from 1 to 3 p.m. But folks don't have to only come during those hours. You know, people call LGBTQ Connection all month long for all kinds of things. And our staff are trained on how to get people connected to what they're looking for in a very friendly way, even if, you know, I'm, I'm not the one that they would be talking to. So, so, so I was go just going to say, so in theory, if something happened on a day other than that fourth Monday, they called up and they said, hey, I, can you arrange a meeting? Is it possible that you would contact the oh, office and bring yeah. them there? Belinda's very flexible. So the schedule time really is um, the idea, I think, that we have underneath all of what we do, which is around how do we build a relationship and that ongoing trust. So it's not only during certain times. That's great. So Belinda, Belinda's there to be seen, to talk to people. Folks can drop in and just ask a question without an appointment on that fourth Monday. Um, and uh, they can call up since some folks aren't you know, in person yet, um, even though our offices are open. Uh, and... Um, and, uh, and so it's about that building that relationship. But yes, Belinda has said she'd make herself available anytime that she can. That's great. Um, so if we get a call another time, we'll, make, we'll figure that out. Awesome. Allison, I want to ask you a little bit more about what you heard at that community meeting uh, that Ian mentioned earlier. And, and more broadly, in your experience now as the district attorney, what have you heard from the LGBT community in terms of some of the unique challenges that they face related to crime in the system? So Ian was so generous in thanking me for being at that meeting, but my presence at that meeting was very happenstance. Um, I was asked by the county um, to appear and I was perfectly willing, but I really thought that the county's idea was that non-subject matter experts would go to these different places. So I was asked to go to like land use stuff and so that we would really be these neutral parties to take in information without any bias. Mm -hmm. So I went to the LGBTQ community thinking this has nothing to do with me. I'd be delighted to spend the evening with them and how wrong I was. And I'll tell you a, a conversation I had with Ian. I don't know if he remembers it from that night, but one of the things that I heard very, very clearly was a lack of trust. And um, particularly as it related to domestic violence or sexual assault, that those profoundly intimate crimes and those profoundly intimate and complex human relationships 
it was very difficult to be explaining those dynamics to someone that they did not trust. That was very, made very clear to me. And at the end of the evening, I was speaking with Ian, who I didn't know very well at the time. And I said, you know, I'm thinking I should get staff, you know, staff that would want to trained in these kinds of issues. And Ian looked me right in the face and he says, you should mandate it for your entire staff. And I'm like, oh, I don't know. I, you know, maybe just, just a few. And I ignored Ian. I only made it available for the people that wanted it. Um, and then about a year later, it showed up to me that he was absolutely correct. That if I want to change culture, if I want to change what the expectation is and how we treat people, you mandate it. This is right. the way that it goes for the entire staff. And I want to publicly thank Ian for that because um, it was powerful. And now I, LGBTQ training is on our yearly list. People in this office know my feelings about it and know that it's taken seriously. It is not a performative training that we have to do every year and just get it over with. That the district attorney's uh, in this office highly values the voice of this community and it is important. We go to this training now every year, and I really want to thank Ian for that. That's great. Thank you. Well, and I will echo the importance of what you said about training. Um, you know, law enforcement's undergoing that training requirement now, and it's what's what's I'm happy about in hearing in California is that there's actually agencies that are embracing it and wanting it. Not everybody is going, you know, uh, kicking uh, into that training, and and the feedback's been pretty good so far. It's been pretty good so what, far. It makes what a Ian does so well and what was communicated to our office is curiosity grounded in compassion. Yeah. Right? Like to be asking questions and to find out about people who may show up differently than us, but that it's always grounded in this very compassionate place. And that's true for LGBTQ communities and anyone right. who doesn't look like me or sound like yeah. me. Well, I think you hit the, the nail on the head earlier when you were talking about trust. That is, I think, the central common obstacle between the system, the criminal justice system, and the community right now uh, in all the things that we've seen happen, right? Sure. Ian, what's, what have you heard in terms of the reaction? I mean, I know the program is only months old, uh, but what's the reaction been from you know, your staff and from the community? I think it's uh, it's felt like tiptoeing. I think if I'm just going to be very honest, and and we expected that, you know, we're dealing with COVID right now, so the the, the traffic in the building is not what it usually is. Mm -hmm. um, and in addition to that, anything that's new, I think, brings a little bit of curiosity and a little bit of like, is this for real? You know, um, I think that our communities, because of the the lack of intentional relationship building that they felt. Um, are hesitant. And so we, we knew going into this, it wasn't going to be, you know, full on full speed ahead. It was going to be slow building because it's about building trust. Um, and so um, I think that our staff, when they, they got to meet Belinda all together and just basically ask any question that they wanted to and really dig into what is this and is this for real and how does it work and how do we help people get connected? 
after that meeting, they are excited. They, they're very excited about this offering about Belinda and what she brings. Uh, and, um, and so are wanting to get Belinda to come to pride events, to meet community. They're wanting to refer folks when we hear of cases that need to be referred or even the, you know, one of the great things is this flexibility, just being able to, to drop in and ask any question, even if it's not a formal, I want to pursue something, but just to get to, Hey, Belinda, who are you? Tell me mm -hmm. what you do. Um, I think that that that's what we're hearing from the community. Um, we have, I, I think people are still getting used to the idea that this is a, a real thing that's happening. It's uh, as you mentioned at the beginning of our time together today, it's not common everywhere that this is happening. Uh, and so we're doing all that we can to get the word out. That's great. I haven't heard of it happening anywhere, frankly. I mean, I, I, don't, I can't think of any other examples that I've heard about, and I think I'm fairly well connected where there is that integration. In fact, more broadly, LGBT centers are pushing law enforcement agencies away. I mean, I think you've probably read about how uh, certain pride organizations in some of the larger cities have told law enforcement, not only do we want to stand away from you, but you're not welcome to participate in our events. The trust has been broken down that far. Um, and so this is really, I think, truly unique which is great. It's really, really great. Allison, it, you know, based on your experience so far in the county, uh, I think your office is clearly way ahead, probably of, of most of the agencies in, in the county in terms of building a close working relationship with the LGBT community. What would you like to see the system do more of uh, beyond just having the victim witness program present in LGBTQ connection? I really am touched and recently by the need in this community for mental health support mm -hmm. and particularly with our young people so my 17 year old niece identifies as a lesbian she lives outside of baltimore and ended up having to um, get out of school early graduate early because of the bullying and so forth I really want to get inside schools <laughs> and I really want to create relationships with our next generation that, um, that they've, that might change that narrative. And, but, but I, I so much recognize that that is going to require that we are trustworthy, like having the relationship, like you said, in, um, working with Ian and having Belinda present there, it is all about trust building and us showing that we're trustworthy, that mm -hmm. the things that I'm saying are accurate. You don't have to, to cooperate with the prosecution. You don't have to file a case. We have to consistently show up month after month and continually be trustworthy. And I think recognizing the mental health issues with our young people, particularly our LGBTQ, who perhaps staying home during COVID was more painful than for other similarly situated students of that age. Mm -hmm. I just, I want to find a way to make that connection. Um, or if even, maybe even if we're not the, the right agency to facilitate or to use any political capital or to help um, direct services in that way. I just, I, they sit on my heart, that particular group of people in our community. Yeah, and I, it's, it's got to be difficult right now because a lot of school districts, I don't know what, what Napa Unified's position is, but a lot of school districts in California are sort of pushing the school resource officer away, 
trying mm-hmm. to get away from that connection with law enforcement. And of course, that's not going to be helpful in building trust at all. Uh, it kind of goes back to what we were saying earlier about LGBT centers telling law enforcement you're not welcome. How in the world are we going to have a conversation to try to repair the mistrust if we're not even willing to sit down and in the same space? Sure. So do you think uh, do you think the system, the rest of the system in Napa County is up to speed and ready to engage with the community as much as your office has? I'll tell you that from where I'm sitting, there has been nothing but encouragement for these kinds of conversations to be having. I think that when you speak frankly and boldly about the needs that we're seeing about, um, and let me put on a different hat. I'm the president of If Given a Chance, which is a nonprofit that gives financial assistance Mm. to kids who um, have persevered and really shown a lot of resilience. And 10 years ago, I'm on the selection committee. We pick the kids that get the the award money. 10 years ago versus the kinds of essays that we're receiving now, 10 years ago, the issues were were different. Nowadays, in just this most recent uh, review of essays, the occurrence of acute mental health problems that our students are facing from cutting to eating disorders, to profound anxiety, depression, all the way to suicide attempts, multiple suicide right. attempts. If we are willing to not sanitize the problems that we have in this community and speak boldly and frankly about the effects that these things have happened and about the burden that our students are carrying is only when we can open doors. And I'm sure that Ian has a lot to offer about what he's seeing in that regard. Yeah. You can talk more about that. What are you, what's your perspective? Well, Allison, yeah, you did, you did share already about how um, the pandemic, I mean, I think it's the word that everyone says, but it's exacerbated what already existed. And so if you're a young person and you are, you know, locked in at home uh, because of the pandemic and uh, the, your home is not affirming, um, that just multiplies the, the pain that you're feeling. Um, and I'd say that, you know, I was just speaking with a pediatrician actually the other day who was talking about how their office has received so many young people and just more and more increasing over the years who are more tuned into vocabulary and their own gender identities um, and um, and their families' reactions to that. And it could be positive or it could be, could be negative. Um, and so I think that our young people are tuned into mental health in a similar way where they now have these, you know, pretty advanced words for, for little, you know, for young people, depending on their age, um, to describe what they're experiencing and the, and the intense pain that they have um, when their world is not helping them to be healthy and to, to be whole. So yeah, we have definitely seen an increase in, in um, acute mental health challenges for our young people. We've also seen, you know, I guess, a bright side of COVID is that it really pushed a lot of community organizations to figure out how do we form community when we can't be together physically. Um, And we've had young people who've been participating with us who need to use the chat feature in our meetings, even on our leadership teams, because their family's not, you know, they can't speak out loud in front of their family, but they're connected to us. Uh, And so, you know, having more 
more youth and more community members be able to participate. Even our older, older adult group, we switched to Zoom and I wasn't sure how that was going to work because, you know, technology can be a barrier for some folks of any right, age. Right. Um, and it's been great, you know. Um, so there have been some plus sides, but there's also a lot of pain out in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of people who don't know that services like what we offer, um, both just LGBTQ connection in general and in partnership with the district attorney's office, they don't know we exist. So it really helps to get the word out as much as we can too, so that people don't have to be alone in what they're suffering. Well, hopefully this show will help do that. We're going to take a quick music break. Here's Stephen Sketchia with A Thousand Years. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Heart beats fast Colors and promises How to be brave How can I love when I'm afraid to fall But watching you stand alone All of my doubts suddenly goes away somehow our friend Stephen Scaccia with Chris Perry's A Thousand Years. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Outbeat News in Depth here on KRCBFM. I'm Greg Moralia, and with us tonight is Napa County District Attorney Allison Haley and LGBTQ Connection Director Ian Stanley. I want to go back to talking about some, some, some of the specific crime problems that you all mentioned earlier in the program. Uh, clearly, domestic violence and hate crimes are two of the areas that are of focus in the the law requiring training for law enforcement, and they're, they're serious problems. Uh, obviously, the, the change in marriage laws allowing same-sex couples to marry, it's coming up six years old, nationally anyway. Uh, Allison, what training, you mentioned that, that your office goes through annual training. Uh, 
What specific training was given around domestic violence with same-sex couples? So the head of our domestic violence at the time, we just recently had a change, was headed by um, Deputy District Attorney Kesha Lind, who has been this um, remarkable ally and really been one to facilitate some trainings with Ian and so forth for the benefit of the office. Mm -hmm. We also receive a lot of our training from California District Attorneys Association, specifically as it relates to domestic violence, stalking, and other kinds of intimate partner violence. And they have recently added um, uh, LGBTQ issues to that curriculum. That's great. Um, we've seen here in Napa an uptick in domestic violence, but uh, the number of LGBTQ domestic violence cases is minuscule. Five to 10 cases that we can identify in the last year. Now you tell me, did we have five or 10 cases of domestic violence in our same sex, in our same sex relationships last year? They are chronically underreported. Right. And you know, how do we make people report more? Is it something we want reported more? It, it, those are all complex moral issues. I think having um, more awareness and frankly, the burden is on law enforcement. We have to be trustworthy and trust is not going to be easily nor quickly gained. So the cases that do come in need to be treated with all of the dignity that is deserved. Um, but we are seeing an uptick, but not necessarily in our LGBTQ cases that are coming. And that could be um, possibly a good thing in terms of the fact that people are reporting. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I remember when domestic violence was first a focus in law enforcement. Uh, we used to, I remember many, many years ago, that sort of static response was, well, that's a civil matter. That's between you, the two of you, the police don't get involved. And then there was this change in law and this big push to get people to report. And then people reported. And all of a sudden, it appeared like we had an epidemic of domestic violence happening. Um, Ian, from your end, are you hearing that, that, that domestic violence is an issue in our community and that people are not reporting it? What's, what's your sense? Yeah, that's our sense. Um, you know, hearing from the community, it is, it's not that it's not happening, as you alluded to, Allison, it's, it is happening. I think for a long time, you know, the national data um, was uh, missing because they weren't even asking, you know, when they were collecting some of that information in, in previous years. And so uh, organizations that support folks who are, are victims of that sort of violence, um, basically just had to assume because of the stories they were hearing. Um, we've really strongly developed our partnership with news over the years, uh, which is that support organization locally here in Napa County um, to make sure that their volunteers were trained and supported into talking about this, that their trainings integrated this sort of information. They have a great staff that has been fantastic at doing that and uh, supporting us in the work that we do. Um, we are not domestic violence experts at LGBTQ Connection, um, but uh, but news is and um, and their support in doing this has been has been great. But yes, in general, folks are experiencing um, this uh, and it has increased, I, we believe, with COVID um, because people are in um, very intense, stressful situations and at homes that they can't, you know, for a while we didn't even know if we could walk outdoors, uh, right. you know, <laughs> and so um, I think that we should have seen an increase in reporting, um, but folks are, are not necessarily reporting. Yeah. And I'm suspicious too. Um, I've reading through, you know, we get 6,100 
cases a year. So I certainly have not read all 6,100 cases over the year, but in the lot, lots of reading that I do, I think they're not getting counted because they're showing up as maybe roommates having an assault. Um, and that may be purposeful or simply misidentified by law enforcement that it's arriving. The cases that I have read do have common features of uh, a mental health crisis at the moment mm. or um, and or the use of alcohol. Those are very common features in kind of what we're seeing precipitating those kinds of incidents. Mm-hmm. But I'm wondering if they're being misidentified. Oh, well, I know they are. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm certain that many of them are being misidentified mm-hmm. um, either you know, like purposely or not. Well, in the training that we do at the Academy specific to LGBT issues, we we target that specific um, error uh, with a scenario where we talk about when you go into a situation with a same-sex couple, what are the things you should be looking for? If they talk about being roommates, are they in a one-bedroom apartment with pictures of each other all over the place? Those kinds of things. Uh, because people are afraid to be outed. They're not out to their mm-hmm. families. And so they think if they call the police that that's going to be something that's going to make the problem even worse for them. What about hate crimes? I mean, I know we're really fortunate in Napa, uh, at least statistically anyway, that it we haven't had anything really super significant happen, which is great. Fingers crossed, knock on wood. Um, talk about, Allison, your office's process and involvement in hate crimes investigations. So when um, it's true, statistically, our numbers are quite low, such that when we do receive a hate crime, it immediately comes to my attention. So I will have reviewed that case. Those cases are typically specially assigned because um, proving up hate crimes is a little bit legally technical. They can become complex Mm -hmm. cases in a way that is tedious to go into now, but I think it's a little bit misunderstood by the public. Um, But again, are we getting all of them? Are we hearing all of them? Um, you know, we're not seeing the kinds of crimes that we're seeing certainly in San Francisco right now. Um, I was just reading that before coming on this morning about our um, our crimes against our Asian, uh, our Asian community. Um, but those cases are handled very carefully. And I'll tell you what, for being a Bay Area county, when we try cases in front of juries, Juries tend to be pretty conservative um, when it comes to that kind of behavior. Um, they're taken very, very seriously. And again, we don't see them too often, at least here in the office. So I think maybe that's the disconnect. There's what's happening out there. And I'm pointing to my window, mm-hmm, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And then there's what we get at the district attorney's office. And we only get those cases that are reported to police and that the police took a report on. And that's a that's very much a subset of what is actually happening out there. So I don't want to be too self-congratulatory like DAs can be sometimes um, to say, oh, I've solved the problem. You know, we're not seeing those numbers. Uh, that would be nice to say, but I don't know how truthful that is. Ian, so what's your sense? Is it like domestic violence or hate crimes happening out in the LGBT community and not being reported? Well, okay. So as I mentioned, not being an expert in domestic violence, I would say I'm also not an expert in hate crimes. However, we, you know, our expertise at the the program is to be connected with community and help them get connected to affirming resources. Mm -hmm. We have heard stories over the years um, that, well, and and this was a learning area. I think I spoke to maybe both of you um, about what is the 
process because when I was trying to help our local gov, when we at our program was trying to help our, our, pro our local government to be more LGBTQ aware and welcoming, one of the things that we looked into was the rate of hate crimes. And I think the year we looked, it was one or zero or something like that. And I was like, how, really, how can that be? Um, but I, I learned that the whole process of, you know, what, what gets reported and then once that's reviewed, and I'll probably use the wrong terminology, but what has the right evidence or, you know, will that be then prosecuted? And then once it goes from there, does what happens with it, it could be dismissed. And so there's all sorts of things that can um, put something off track from being even tracked. Um, one of those is, does the officer even document it correctly or does it leave something out? We've heard stories from community members that they have been um, attacked over the years and they thought it was a homophobic attack. Um, or transgender related, and they told an officer that, and then it was not included in their police report. So then we helped, you know, figure out um, through your office, actually, Allison, that they could um, submit their own attachment to that report to make sure it is included. And we could advocate with that officer and their supervisor to make sure things like that are not missed. Um, so, yeah, I, we think things are getting missed and, and or not reported. Mm. So what's the what's the answer? I'll put this question to both of you. How do we how do we res, how do we improve the accuracy, the detection, if you will, of hate crimes uh, so that they're adequately reported? Uh, and maybe the same question for domestic violence. But let's talk about hate crimes. How do we improve this? Do you think? Well, I think it's it's every point in the system, right? So starting with you and the academy mm -hmm. and raising recognition. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you that the biggest impact on me and the sensitivity to the LGBTQ community was loving someone <laughs> that fell into that community. Like I adore my niece. And when she came out to our very fundamentalist family and the, the amount of affection I had for her opened up a sensitivity to all of those issues for me in a way that sadly hadn't been before. And I say that with a lot of embarrassment, right? So um, there's, I think at every point to integrate our LGBTQ community and that conversation into everything that we do in this county, not just criminal justice, but everything that's important to this community in public health and health and human services and land use and all of these things, recognizing that then I think it, it opens the eyes of people to recognize hate when they see it. Because I'll tell you what, I don't think hate crime is just an assault in the street. I think hate crime is when you don't get hired because maybe you don't want someone flamboyant in the reception's office. Mm -hmm. Like it's those kinds of systemic sorts of things where, you know, that personality is okay for these things, but not other things. Right. Um, yeah, Ian. I, I completely agree. I think that our, it, it might not have started explicitly in our mission, but the idea that we want to change the culture and throughout our county, throughout the valley, um, to be a place where people are not surprised that someone cares about LGBTQ mm -hmm. people, that if an issue or a concern is brought up, that it actually will be handled, that the local government and agencies and community organizations and families want to celebrate pride and want to be together in that visibility um, and recognition. I think, I think that's really what it takes because ultimately I think the reason that folks don't report, and yes, it is trust, 
but it's trust that people actually care. It's trust that something's going to happen and not the usual thing that happened in the past. Mm -hmm. So over the last five and five and 10 years with great community partners and organizations, um, even the Rainbow Action Network and their push to, to get uh, local governments to recognize racism and proclaim those as a public health crisis. I think that is really, really important because it changed the perspective of our community about what's possible and that folks actually do care and something will happen if a concern is raised. Mm-hmm. You raised such a good point. If I can interject yeah, quickly, please. you know how much praise I have received for caring about this community it's, oh, you shouldn't be praising me for having compassion for, like, it's, it feels so uncomfortable. Like, that, I, I don't vote for a DA <laughs> that it would be a surprise to find out that they had compassion for people. Um, so it's such an interesting, um, it's such an interesting place to be. Uh, but very, it's, very uncomfortable. But it is what the community wants, right? I mean, oh, you're, you're I think hearing that the community loud and clear. is very hungry for deeply yeah. moral leaders that show compassion. Yeah, sincerely. And I think that that's been absent. Yeah. Yeah. So, Ian, let's let me follow up on, on what you were just talking about and go back to that survey. Uh, we've got now this fantastic partnership and access to the system at mm-hmm. a comfortable space. Uh, if you were going to sit down with the law enforcement leaders in Napa County. And I know you've had these conversations, but for our listeners, uh, you know, what are your priorities? What are some things that you would like to see the criminal justice system doing specifically to make things better for the LGBTQ community? Um, yeah, I was just talking, well, not with a law enforcement leader. I was talking with a community member yesterday and they were talking about, talking about some of that. I think one of the things is that as an organization and for, I mean, your listeners might not know, um, but I'm a, a white man that grew up in Napa. Um, we didn't talk about race or what is our role or my role in, in working and to make a community that is less racist or not racist. I think that race and LGBTQ are two of the most important things that our community leaders need to be aware of and addressing um, racism and LGBTQ um, awareness. And so that's one of the things that I hope is talked about frequently because Um, people of color in our community do not have the same experience as I do in our communities. Um, And it's, it's saying we need to bring our compassion to, to those um, circumstances and experiences also so that we can change things. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that having local law enforcement care about what uh, our communities are going through and how to increase that relationship is really important. Having a diverse workforce that represents the community and looks like the community is really important. Uh, and I think changing policies so that um, we remember to treat all of our folks in a, in a humane and respectful way, regardless of any circumstance that's going on, is really important. Um, it's it's going to, you know, it takes time after time to build relationships of trust, time after time. It is not quick. It is not one thing. And it's not one time. Yeah. And it takes an investment of training. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and, and that and money. And money. Right? Like very intentional. Like one of the things that I would like to do in my office is to have someone on call to be able to go out in the event that law enforcement were to need an advocate at 2 a.m. for an LGBTQ member. Mm-hmm. Like I would love to be able to have an, a 24 hour on call advocate Amazing. who could be 
that's the person you call like, and they are enmeshed in the, in, in that community. They're having office hours, they're meeting and building relationships, but it's really expensive to pay someone to potentially keep their phone all night and to be called out to these kinds of off hours things. And we either, and I know that that comes in a lot of the conversations are involving defunding the police and those much more complicated issues, but it really becomes intentional budgeting. Like the budget, that's where it's at. That's where we show our priorities. And um, if you want to know what's important to me, you look at my budget. That's where I'm putting money into. And um, it has to be well-resourced because what I don't want to have happen is this performative. I just put someone over at LGBTQ for two hours a month. I'm done. (laughs) That's, That's performative. And that's for my ego. That's not really building well, I like what you said about the, and I'll call it a liaison position, because a lot of agencies yeah. across the U.S. are are creating those positions now. It's uh, an idea that started on the East Coast, but I can tell you, from all across the U.S., departments are designating LGBT liaison personnel. It doesn't always have to be an officer, but it, it, but that person does exactly what you suggest, which is... When an officer needs some help with language and communication, when there needs to be a member of the LGBT community in between law enforcement and a victim, that person is available to respond. And, and it's very, very successful. It would be amazing for every agency in Napa County to have a designated LGBT liaison officer. And that person doesn't have to be part of the community. I mean, it helps, but they don't have to be. Uh, it just has to be an individual who understands and, and can use the language. Thoughts, Ian? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, it, that's it, that's a start. That's a piece of it, and I think the the, la- the liaison piece too is not just about someone uh, only supporting the community members. It's also helping to make sure that when decisions are being made, when you know other things are happening, that they can help share the voice and experience of the community with with the offices yep. and the folks who are making those decisions. I think is is important. Yeah, it's great. Allison, where can people go to learn about the Victim Witness Program and uh, the services your office provides? Well, there's a couple of things. They can call us at 299-1414, and that's a 707 area code. And that takes you directly to our Victim Witness Services Division here at the DA's office. They can come here. Even though we talked about how for many, many people, it's not a safe space, that's still an option. Um, they can meet us at LGBTQ uh, with Ian uh, on those on those Mondays, they can meet us at Puertas Albiertas, which is the new um, relationship that we're building for our Latinx community, um, which is going to be staffed by someone who speaks Spanish and probably not Arabic. Um, but uh, they can also meet us at Monarch Justice Center. So this is brand new in our community, a, a nonprofit that is a partnership with Aldea and News and so forth. It is a um, a location right across the street from the police department and servicing victims or survivors of sexual assault, human trafficking, elder abuse, and domestic violence. So you don't want to go to the the police department. That's fine. We will meet you there. We have a place for your children to be. We have portals where you can appear in court. If you don't feel comfortable going to the courthouse, we have resources. We have Bay Area Legal. If you need a restraining order, if you need help with a divorce, all of those kinds of services. We can do interviews there. We can do sex assault exams there. We can do everything in a place that is that protects your dignity, gives you some privacy, 
and doesn't feel like a government office because it's not. Amazing. And that is immediately across the street um, from the police department called Monarch Justice Center. And I think it's monarch, monarchjusticecenter.com. But let me double check that. That's great. Well, we'll put links on our website at outbeatnews.com for, for the Monarch Justice Center as well as the phone number to your office. That's great. And it is monarchjusticecenter.org. Monarch Forgive me. Okay, monarchjusticesystem.org. Perfect. I'll fix that. Uh, Ian, what about your operation? Where can people go to access information about the LGBTQ connection in Napa? Yeah, so LGBTQ Connection Napa, and we have a Sonoma County program as well. So folks can search for LGBTQ Connection Napa or Sonoma on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. We also have a phone number, 707-948-6640. That's our special mobile number. So even if we're not in the office, that goes to us directly. Um, and at lgbtqconnection.org, we have... Um, a list with the flyer of all of the services that um, Belinda is providing on behalf of the district attorney's office, victim witness services, uh, and all of our other information. Fantastic. And you're up in Healdsburg now too, as well, I hear. Healdsburg and American Canyon. Yeah. That's great. LGBTQ connection is going to be taking over the world. <laughs> well, at least helping to build connections and relationships. Yes. I love it. I love it. Uh, Allison Haley, Ian Stanley, thank you so much. This is a brilliant program. You've heard me say this before. I just think the, the world of it. And uh, it's a model that we're sharing out in the training that we do as well. So congratulations to you both. Thank you so much. Thank it's you. a real, it's an honor in so many ways. Very meaningful. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of our hour. Tune in next Sunday night for a special Outbeat Extra with all of your Outbeat radio hosts getting together to talk about our work and the pandemic and what's been going on in LGBTQ news. That's at 8 p.m. and only here on 104.9 KRCB-FM, Sonoma County's NPR station. In the meantime, have a great week and thanks for spending your Sunday night with us. Outbeat News In Depth is hosted and produced by Greg Moralia. Our shows are available for on-demand play anytime on our website at outbeatnews.com and on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and now on iHeartRadio. Find links to subscribe at outbeatnews.com. I love to change the world, but I don't know. Broken down and tired of living life on the merry-go-round, and you can't find a fighter. But I see it in you, so we gon' walk it out. Move mountains. We gon' walk it out. And Support for Outbeat Radio on KRCBFM comes from listeners and from Rocky, the free-range chicken, and Rosie, the original organic chicken. Air-chilled, non-GMO, locally raised right here in Sonoma County, with no antibiotics ever. More information is available at rockyandrosie.com. 
You're listening to 104.9 KRCB-FM Roanoke Park and KRCG-FM Windsor, Sonoma County's NPR station. It's 9 p.m. Stay with us. Beale Street Caravan is next.